Karl Barth, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, was one time asked what was the, the most profound thought that he'd had regarding, uh, well, I don't know what it was regarding, actually. I think life. And what he said was, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. So we sang that today because I know you, you think that it's a children's song. We learned it when we were children, but we never outgrow it, and it never outgrows us. We've been talking a lot about change in the church the last few weeks, and it's not just because we have a new pastor coming, but because we want to be a church that is relevant in our community and in our world, and the world keeps changing on us, and we're going to have to adapt if we're going to be able to communicate at all. So, we're doing that. and we're, I'm sure as I've been talking about change, you have been thinking that I've been talking primarily to old people who don't like change. But that's not, that's not necessarily so. Some old people can think really young. And some young people are really old. So it's not the age that I'm talking about, but it's the attitude that I've been talking about. The biggest, the biggest obstacles to church progress are not necessarily among the, the uh, geriatric generation. People in midlife often have a more difficult time adjusting, primarily because they're still in control. And, and they like wielding control or power, like getting their way. And often when it sounds like they're talking about some theological issue, some church issue, they're not really talking about that at all. They're, they're struggling over who has the power, who gets to wield it, who should exercise it, and we call these control issues. Actually, often the people in church who can be most counted on to help the church move forward are the grandparents. And they're willing to sacrifice, even if they don't get their way, they're willing to sacrifice for the sake of their grandchildren because they want their grandchildren in church. I've been thinking a lot about my own lately, about what my grandkids need. I don't mean just our biological offspring. I mean our whole big Velcro family. I've told you about our, our Velcro family before. I've, I've told you that we're a great big family of dysfunction. In fact, we have a rule. You can't get into our family if you come from a functional family. Now, we made one exception, and that's Mike Pryor. You're going to hear more about Mike Pryor later because he's coming with FPM and going to talk to you about uh, wills and trusts. Mike wasn't qualified for our family because he came from a very good family. And uh, so we kind of had to wait until his parents died. And <laughs> And then we adopted him. So he belongs to us now. Now Jeff, who stood up a moment ago, Jeff's our oldest Velcro son. And uh, he's highly qualified um, <laughs> to, be in, to be in our family. And I, I want to tell you a little bit about his story because you'll understand. I'm sure he's sick of this. But um, 56 years ago, his mother dragged him to church on a Sunday morning. And... Uh, and he walked this tall, six-foot-four, young then, uh, handsome then, um, <laughs> kid who was just not exactly thrilled about 
coming to church. And, uh, and yet his mother was desperate because uh, he'd been in some trouble. In fact, he'd been in trouble all of his life. The latest was that he was uh, caught and thrown into jail for stealing liquor from the Episcopalian vicar's garage. <laughs> in desperation, wanting to know what to do with this kid, she called her brother, who was an elder in church across Portland. He said, you know, we've just started a new church out by you. Why don't you go there and see if you can get some help? So kicking and screaming, at least mentally, he came to church that morning. And we bonded. I had the privilege of baptizing him and his mother. Had the... Uh, privilege of just making him a part of our family, and uh, this kid who was in a lot of trouble, in time became an elder in his church, and it's quite a story. One year, at, uh, our family we have an all-family vacation week every year, and we generally end the day around a campfire telling stories, insulting one another. And uh, one year, there were, there were 70 of us that year, and we had some people there who hadn't come before, and, and so I kind of took charge of the family, vacation, family bonfire, and I asked them to go around the circle and just tell everybody what brought you into the Lawson family and what has kept you here. Now, the stories would have broken your heart, some of them, but I... I was so proud of them. And by the time we got around, I was fighting tears. And I was thinking, I must, I must be feeling a little bit like what God feels when he gets his whole big dysfunctional family together and wouldn't give up one of them. Well, thinking about that took me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Now this is a father writing to his Velcro son. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. How do you suppose that happened? Three generations of the faith, Lois, Eunice, Timothy. doesn't happen in all families. Uh, you can go to the Old Testament, for example, and read there of, the, of that fine priest, Eli, godly man, whose sons did not turn out well at all, characterized by their immoral behavior, by greed, by their lack, really, of faith in or fear of God. They were bad boys, and they grew up to be bad men. It happens in some families. Some families, generations of faithfulness. Other families, the flame dies out quickly. And we're regularly reading these days of the rising generation's dissatisfaction with the church. But their dissatisfaction is really seldom with Jesus. 
And that's our hope. So I'm going to make this personal. I hope you'll make it personal for yourselves and for this church. Joy and I have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and our concern for them is that they find a church fit for our grandchildren. I want them to belong to a church that is a larger family of people who will love them. Uh, on this point, I want to uh, encourage you, commend you for what I've already observed. Your children in this church, it seems to me, are well-loved. Uh, I'm thinking about my own church. My home church is Tillamook, Oregon. I've already told you all about that. But I want my grandkids to experience what I experienced in that church. I, I talk about my church often because the saints of God in that church are so responsible for what I became. They're the ones who held me together when my parents' marriage was falling apart. They provided a larger family when, for me when I most needed it. Now, what they were doing was modeled by Jesus. He was talking one day to a group of people, and there was a bit of a disturbance, and, and somebody broke through and told him, and this is in chapter 12 of Matthew, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brother are outside waiting to, wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, and if you take this out of context, it sounds harsh. But it isn't harsh. He replied to him, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In a sense, what he is saying to them is, I'm redefining family for you. Now, blood ties are important, no doubt, and we're not going to take a thing away from them. But not all of us have those strong blood ties. Our ties in Christ assume an even greater significance, as he showed from the cross when he looked down and saw his mother. And his good friend John. And he said, Woman, here is your son. And then to the disciples, he said, Here's your mother. From that time on, this disciple took Jesus' mother into his home, and they became family. His, his mother would not be left behind, uncared for, even though he was leaving. Back in 2002, President Bush signed what has become popularly called the No Child Left Behind Act. It, uh, it was greeted with a mixed reception, and it has had mixed results. But the motive was admirable, and we can see that motive in Jesus' care for his mother here. No parent left behind. And really, the hope of the gospel is no person will be left behind. We, we old-timers with not so many years left, we want to make certain that our grandchildren won't be left behind when we are gone. So we need for them a church in which they can learn who Jesus is and why he matters to them. Now, it's not enough just to have a relationship with one another, as good as that is. But we all also need to be connected to the eternal, 
into eternal truths. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We sang, I believe, the, the creed this morning. We're talking about a foundation, a foundation to build a life on, a, a measuring stick for judging all the other claims for truth and allegiance. We all need a, a solid place to stand, a haven in a storm, a, a frame of reference. We need lens through which to see and to see through the shallow and often untruthful world we're a part of. There's a, there's a wave of militant atheism abroad, and it's pretty persuasive sometimes. But I find when I'm listening to their arguments against God, I'm asking, but how do you live? How does your non-faith reflect itself in your life? Because I grew up with people of faith, and their faith was expressed by how they lived, and I was the recipient of that loving faith. So I'm a skeptic about skepticism. I'm more interested in knowing how people live than by their arguments. Rose Shearer was a member of the little church that Jeff and I met in. She came to church, I think, the second day, that, uh, second Sunday that the church doors were open. A little old lady and her husband, Jean, they came from the old country, Alsace-Lorraine. They spoke with heavy German accents. We were mostly young people in that church, and we just, we just kind of glommed on to Rochere in particular as the church grandmother. She was a good woman, and uh, I could tell so many stories about her. But the one that touched me so much, we moved away after six years, and while we were away, Jean died. Rose went into a nursing home. And on one of our trips back from Tennessee to Oregon... We went to that nursing home to see Rose Shearer. She'd had a stroke. She was in physical therapy that morning. Joy and I and the kids kind of joined in and did exercises with her. Her nurse came by. She wanted to introduce her nurse to her old pastor. Talk was not easy for her. Her words were limited. So she just got to the nubbin of it. And she said to the nurse, this is Roy. He taught me Christ. And I should have said, and I didn't. But it would have been the truth. And this is Rose. She taught me Christ. Because I was a young pastor and knew not very much at all. She was an old woman who had had a hard but good life. She had a lot to teach me. I, I want my grandchildren to be in a church where Rose Shearer is, who will take an interest in my grandkids, because I want them to be taught Christ by their pastor, yes, but by grandparents like Rose so that they can learn who Jesus is and why he matters to them and how much they matter to him. And I want a church in which they can understand, they can learn to understand the difference between the essentials and non-essentials. This is part of the plea of our church. We, we plead for, for unity in what is essential and liberty in what is not essential and love in everything. How much grief 
people are saved if they have a sense of priority and, and can get exercised about what's worth getting exercised about and can take it or leave it about the non-essential things. Now, how, how to decide what matters and who matters, that's the big issue. And that's why we look to Jesus. The scriptures call him the, our, the, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I want to read you that because the language is so good. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. If you want to know what we believe, if you want to know what we ought to do, look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter. We used to sing a chorus that summarizes it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It was hard to grasp this when we were young. But with maturity, we see more and more clearly how unimportant, or at least how much less important, are the things of earth that we tend to get exercised about, give too much attention to, as if they are of significance. So, so... I want my grandkids in a church where they will learn to focus on Jesus, who taught us what is essential, and you all know he summarized it in one sentence. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's essential. And the way we live expresses what we think about what is essential and what isn't. Uh, We get so exercised that about some things that it sounds like with some people what matters is not so much what you love as what you hate. When I was, when I was young, some so-called super-Christians thought that you couldn't be a Christian if you smoked or drank alcoholic beverages or danced or played cards or went to movies. Later on, listened to rock music. By the way, Joy, my wife, was not allowed to dance when she was young. So when we were talking about having children, she let me know for sure one thing would happen, and that is our children would dance. (laughs) And they do. Remember H.L. Mencken's definition of a Puritan that's kind of helpful here? He said, a Puritan is someone who is deathly afraid that someone, somewhere, is having fun. Now, I have some friends who think that you can't be a Christian if you're a Democrat. And I, <laughs> and I have some other friends who think you can't be a Christian if you're a Republican. <laughs> some people, you can't be a church leader if you've ever been divorced. Some people... Believe that you prove the depth of your Christian faith by the intensity of your hatred of Muslims, of Mexicans, of immigrants, of gay people, of black people, etc., etc., etc. Now, it was the same when we grandparents were young. Then we were in the throes of a war. I was taught as a child, not by the kind of people I've been talking about, in the church, 
But in our culture, it was proper, it was necessary to hate Japanese because we were at war with Japan. To hate Germans because we were at war with Germans. To hate the Russians. That is until we decided we needed their help to win the war and then we were to love the Russians. <laughs> then it was the communists we were to hate. The Red Chinese. The North Koreans. North Vietnamese. Now we're supposed to hate Middle Easterners. Always throughout my life pressure has been brought to bear to hate somebody as if we are not complete unless we have enemies. But Jesus said, we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. See what I mean? I want my grandkids in a church that will teach them, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world because if they will learn that, then maybe they will grow up to love big people in the world as well. Red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, smart and not so smart, and people like us and people not anything at all like us. I've had my own struggle. I had to learn to love tall people. <laughs> I want my grandchildren to learn that kind of love in church. And I want for my grandchildren a, a church in which they can worship in their own language. I, I, I preached in an area of the country in which some people genuinely believe that the only Bible is the King James Version of the Bible, and if you used any other version of the Bible, you were not really using the Bible at all. Which is really interesting, because the Bible was published, the King James Version of the Bible was published in the early 1600s, right about the time that Shakespeare died. They wouldn't expect children to be able to sit down and read Shakespeare, but they expected people to, children to sit down and, and, and read a Bible written in Shakespearean English. No, the language changes. And I, well, even my dad, Joy and I, was it his birthday, Joy, that we gave dad a, a living Bible? Dad had been in church all, most of his life. But he started reading the living Bible and he said to me as a preacher one day, now I understand what you guys are talking about up there. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I've wanted to keep people in the King James Version that I could get away with anything. That's <laughs> or we could talk about, I've talked a lot about music as it represents change. We're not ever going to agree on music. Generations never have. What, what we sang our, as kids in my generation offended our parents. And... Uh, and now I don't like much of the kids. Lane, son, Lane and I were driving in the car one day and the music was on. And he leaned over and he turned up the volume. He said, now listen to this, Dad. Listen to this. It's really good. And I listened. And it wasn't. <laughs> I had no idea what they were singing about. Well, the point, the point is children need to learn, have the opportunity to learn in their own language. Their verbal or spoken language, their music language, it's there. All right, they, they need 
they need to be challenged to become their best selves. Church is not all about us. It's not all about me, whatever my age. Church is a call to love and to serve and to give for the sake of others, of course, but also for our own sake because that's how we become our best selves. Nothing in my elementary, junior, or high school experience challenged me the way my home church did. School was about preparing students to make a good living, to have a fine career, to fit in. Church was about preparing me to dedicate my life to something that would make a difference in my community and in my world. It called me to think about somebody besides myself, to enter a much bigger world. It challenged me to to love God and my neighbor as myself. Now, if, if our grandkids can have that kind of church experience, then I know in that church, a church fit for my grandchildren, they will experience the joy of their salvation. I, I was on a flight years ago across the country. I'd been served breakfast, another indication of how old the story is. It was a good breakfast. And I was, I was relaxing, savoring my second cup of coffee. When the flight attendant stopped and asked, what makes you so happy this morning? I didn't even know I was. But I, I'd had two cups of coffee. That meant I had to go to the back of the plane after a while. And as I went toward the back of the plane and I looked in the faces of all the people on that plane, I understood why she stopped. There was just an awful lot of grumpiness on that plane. And you could see it in the faces of people who were not happy with life. Because there's so much grumpiness around, I want my children, grandchildren to be able to smile as they go through life. Now, we can't, we can't protect them from disappointment, from sorrow, from sickness, from all the vicissitudes of life, but we can help prepare them strengthen and fortify them. And we can introduce them to other adults who will love them, who are rooting for them. We can introduce them to Jesus and help them to become better acquainted with him. When we teach them Christ, we teach them joy. Then they'll understand the 100th Psalm, which must sound in very strange indeed to people who think that church is all about taking the fun out of life. Here it is. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations, even, even to my grandkids' generation and my great-grandkids' generation. And I, I hope that they can be in a church that makes them want to jump for joy, to, to worship the Lord with gladness, because they know who they are. 
They know who made them. Whose love will never let them go. I, I want, and I think all of us grandparents here want, Kaima Key Christian Church to continue to be and become even more so a church fit for our grandkids.